So this evening, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths, a, a central teaching, as you know, in Buddhism. Um, what's not known so well is that often the Buddha was, um, didn't teach the Four Noble Truths to people straight out. That usually it was only taught to people um, once they were kind of prepared. They had to be kind of prepared or ready or settled or uh, their minds, their hearts opened somewhat. And then he would teach them the Four Noble Truths. And it points to the idea that the Four Noble Truths are pretty easy to understand. They are, you know, a, a school child, a grade school child could understand them. But uh, the profundity of the application is something which um, uh, it said only a fully enlightened person fully realizes and understands, actualizes. And, you know, you've, we've, been, we've been going over this, the instructions for mindfulness each day here, the breath, the body, emotions, thoughts. And uh, the instructions are based on a discourse in the Buddha, uh, by the Buddha, called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the instruction there is to also pay attention to the Four Noble Truths in our experience. Um, and it's a kind of one of the last things the Buddha instructs us to do as we go through the instructions. And in talking about the Four Noble Truths uh, tonight, I'm thinking of it not as a belief, not as a doctrine, but more as an instruction, more as a way of looking at our experience, a way of understanding our experience, um, to look at some part of our experience which is quite important. And that's how it's meant in the, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So you might consider this talk as being kind of a continuation of the kind of instructions we get in the morning. And my hope is to make the talk somewhat simple uh, in, ter in terms of at least you know, not, not, in, not in, in meaning, but in, uh, in presentation. So we'll see how I do. Um, there is a um, story, maybe some of you have heard, of back in very ancient times, maybe back in Stone Age times, uh, there was a king. And one day the king was out, and it's before there was much technology or much of the kind of paraphernalia we have around today. And he was walking around because barefoot, because that's what people did back then. And he stubbed his toe, or he, he st uh, against a little rock, or stepped on a sharp rock and it hurt. So the king went to his minister and said, um, you've got to do something about this, all these rocks out there. And um, I want you to take uh, leather and carpet the whole kingdom in leather so that um, I won't stub my toe anymore. And the minister said, well, yes, but there's an easier way. And the easier way is to um, uh, let's just uh, cover your bottom of your foot with leather. And that was the invention of shoes. Um, and I think of the uh, practice of mindfulness and the Buddha's emphasis on the Four Noble Truths as pointing to the kind of minimum we need to understand so that uh, we can take care of our life carefully, responsibly, wisely, compassionately. 
Um, it's kind of like learning how to put on shoes instead of going out and rearranging the whole universe so that everything will be just right for us and nothing will ever trouble us again. A um, little bit hard to do that. You can't really control the universe the way things go. But we have this one place, the place of the present moment, where we meet the present moment and the way we meet the present moment, which uh, we can take care of, we can put shoes on, and the shoe is that of mindfulness and um, being with our present experience as, as it arises. And in the present moment, there is two things. We can divide our experience of the present moment into two categories that I think are useful. One category is that which is happening. It's a pretty broad category. That which is happening. All kinds of things happen. The other category is our relationship to what is happening. And, the, and to see the difference between those two is a very important part of both mindfulness practice, the freedom that Buddhism talks about, but also in understanding the Four Noble Truths. There's what's happening and there's our relationship to it. And in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha specifically is encouraging us to begin looking at our relationship to our experience. The first, four, the first three foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha is saying, just be present for experience as it is. Just, just be there for the breath, be there for your body pains or your body joys, be there for whatever's going on. Be there for your inner, inner states of mind. But then in the fourth foundation, he says, also you should be aware of what your relationship is to what is going on. So these are very simple things. If we can be in the, in the present moment, we can notice there's two things going on, what's happening in our relationship to it. To kind of say a little bit more about the simplicity of these teachings, um, it's said in the in discourses or that the Buddha, they call the Buddha, the Buddha is called a doctor. And I think this is actually a quite significant statement that they call the Buddha a doctor. Um, because you go to a doctor to cure your, to get a cure, hopefully a cure for an illness. And if you're, especially if you're sick and you need to go to a doctor, most of us don't care too much whether the doctor we go see is a Democrat or Republican, or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist. Uh, especially if it's a really serious problem we have and there's this one doctor in the country who knows how to deal with this, let him or her have whatever religious belief he or, he or she believes in. We go to the doctor for a cure for a particular thing, for the illness. In the same way, the Buddha was a doctor in that he was offering a cure for something very specific, uh, and that was for suffering. Uh, the illness is our suffering, and he was offering a cure for that. And sometimes uh, people look at Buddhism and say, well, this four foundations of mindfulness, four, uh, four, four noble truths, which is at the center of the tradition, emphasize suffering. It's kind of a downer of a religion. <laughs> You know, who needs that? Let's just emphasize joy and light and celebration and all that. And it isn't that the Buddha was ignoring the possibility for joy and happiness. Quite the contrary. But he's a doctor who was interested in the illness. And if you're interested in the illness, 
you want to go talk to someone who knows about that illness and can help you clarify it and help you find a cure. Um, and um, I know that uh, in my life sometimes I've ignored certain medical conditions that I didn't think were, I didn't want to bother with and uh, kind of carried on my life quite merrily and the medical condition got steadily worse. Uh, same thing with uh, our suffering. If we don't attend to it properly, to the so-called illness within us, uh, it often can fester and make our life much more difficult than it needs to be. And in fact, the Four Noble Truths, the way the Buddha formulated it, he formulated it according to the ancient Indian medical model of how ancient doctors would uh, categorize or look at illness. There is an illness, you figure out what the cause of the illness is, you figure out what the possibility of, of cure is, uh, and then you figure out what the prescription is, what you, what you need to do. And um, the illness, the cause, the end of the illness, and what brings about the end of the illness. So the Four Noble Truths are stated very simply. It's a kind of, uh, in it's sim very simple formulation. It says there is suffering, there's a cause, there is the cessation, the cessation of suffering, the cessation of the cause, and there's a path, there's a prescription. And then the commentary and discussion goes in to fill in what those actually mean. A kind of little bit simplistic way of translating it into you know, modern English, perhaps, would be to say there is suffering and there's a cause, and there's happiness and a cause, or a condition for the happiness. And the Four Noble Truths, as part of the foundations of mindfulness, is instructions not so much to ch change our experience necessarily, but to begin understanding in our experience, the, seeing in our experience the presence of these four things. Seeing in our experience the presence of suffering, seeing in our experience the presence of the cause for that suffering, seeing in our experience the possibility of release from that suffering, and seeing in our experience uh, the path or the things we can do that help support the release from that suffering. Part of the brilliance of the formulation, this medical formulation of the Four Noble Truths, is that uh, the Buddha was offering the, this, this, the uh, pivotal point, the central point, the whole pivot in which all of Buddhism kind of rests on, this idea of the Four Noble Truths. He was offering a complete religious or spiritual path, spiritual teaching, that did not depend on any kind of metaphysical speculation or belief. And as far as I know, that's the, this is the only religious tradition in the world that has offered that. Um, mo I think every other religious tradition offers some kind of belief system or some kind of tenet or creed that takes a leap of faith, is a kind of a word, in order, you have to, in order to believe it, because it's very hard to find a proof to some of these fundamental beliefs, the metaphysical speculations. There's nothing metaphysical about suffering. You know, you, you, we feel it, we all feel it. And it's actually, I find, uh, it's actually a great power in the Buddhist spiritual teaching is that it doesn't offer a metaphysical belief that you have to believe in. It offers a possibility of a spiritual path that doesn't require that kind of leap of faith. You, you don't have to be concerned about the nature of God, you don't have to be concerned about the nature 
of an afterlife. You don't have to be concerned about the nature of consciousness. You don't have to be concerned about um, the nature of the self. Um, all those things, all those things, lend itself to to really to kind of categorical statements about any one of those things belong to speculation, and they don't need to be. Um, you don't have to buy into them. You don't have to be involved in them. So, in that sense, Buddhism is you know look can look and look from the outside as being kind of poverty strucken religion, because it doesn't have some of the great big uh, metaphysical edifices that sometimes. Uh, other religions have, but I love it that it's so simple and uh, and so direct, so immediate. Our life right now, uh, free of beliefs. If you read books on uh, kind of encyclopedia entries in, in on Buddhism, and they'll dutifully talk about you know what Buddhists believe, and they'll say Buddhists believe in the Four Noble Truths. But actually, the, the Four Noble Truths are not, supposed to, are not really a belief at all. Uh, four Noble Truths are a way of understanding what's... It's like categories for understanding what's happening for us in the present moment. There is what's happening, and there's our relationship to it. And the Four Noble Truths have everything to do about our relationship to what is happening in the present moment, our relationship to what's happening. So, the first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering. And it's called noble. There's kind of a digni dignity or a sacredness or nobility to the understanding of suffering. When I was um, living at the San Francisco Zen Center many years ago, there was a custom or a practice <clears throat> to go and um, sit with people, have kind of vigils, sit with people um, who were in the hospital or somewhere, various places, um, uh, dying. And um, we would just mostly we just go and sit uh, med in meditation. We go into the hospital room and we bring our cushions and our mats and put it down the linoleum floor and next to the bed and the tubes and just sit there. And we'd have 24-hour sitting sessions. And we have shifts in the hospital. And uh, I remember once going in to see someone or to sit with someone who was I think he was basically in a coma. Um, and it was, he was expected to die in the next few days. And he was in a, a ward in the hospital where people were who were, you know, dying. That was kind of the place they would often put people. So I thought, you know, it was a relatively somewhat common experience in that ward for people to die. As I was leaving after my two-hour shift of sitting there uh, in uh, meditation in his room with him, uh, the, the nurse or the doctor or someone who worked on, the, on that ward uh, came up to me and said, you know, I'm really grateful for you Zen students who come and sit here um, with this person who's dying. You guys seem to sit in there with so much acceptance and equanimity, uh, and it makes it a lot easier for me to go into that room. Because actually, I have aversion to going into that room. I find it kind of very difficult for me um, and painful to be in contact with someone dying. And to see that you guys go in there and you sit there with uh, equanimity and acceptance is uh, very, very helpful for me. And I want to thank you for that. The ability to be present for suffering in a very simple way 
is a phenomenal gift that we can give others. My sister, when she was almost dying, she didn't die, but we thought, we thought she was going to die. She was in the hospital. And um, out in the hallway, I was whispering, oh my God, you know, what are we going to do? She's dying, you know, this is terrible, and we have to do something. Or... And then people go into her room and say, oh, everything will be fine. <laughs> you just, you know, doctors know what to do, everything will be fine. And um, so, I, so I came, I was actually up here, and so I went down to L.A. to see her. And um, I went into her room and got a sense of what was happening, and I went into the room to see her. And I sat down next to her, and I wasn't, most of these people were protecting themselves more than protecting her by saying everything will be okay. I sat down and I said, it's pretty hard, isn't it? You're suffering a lot, aren't you? And she started crying. And after she stopped crying, she said, You're the first person who seems to see me and what, it's, what I'm going through here. Everyone else is saying, you'll be fine, and is kind of avoiding me or denying me or not really seeing what's really going on for me and the difficulty I'm in. And she thanked me for willing to do that. You know, in a small way, I'd been willing to go in there and simply say, there's suffering here. How is it for you? I was willing to be present for it in a small way, in a way that the people, other people in the hospital hadn't been. It's a gift to be able to be willing to be present for suffering in the world and not to be defensive about it or resistant to it or trying to fix it when it can't be fixed. I read a study many years ago of the comfort level that different people had about the death and dying. And they, did, they, they were categorizing people of different religious faiths. And it turned out people of different religions had different comfort uh, zones around uh, the issue of, of, of death. And I forget how the religions were categorized, but um, um, the number one kind of person who was comfortable with uh, death uh, were meditators. I that's quite something. Um, and part of it, I think, is one of the things we learn through mindfulness practice like this, we learn a kind of willingness to see things directly and be with things directly and not to try to automatically, habitually, reactively uh, deny, avoid, defend, um, fix, change, pretty, pretty over, or whatever. Um, and there's a phenomenal amount of suffering in the world. And I think that to the degree in which there's suffering in the world, it requires people who are willing to be witnesses for it, to be present for it. It's one of the greatest things we can offer. Um, to be a human being, I think, is a phenomenally precious thing. And this is what, in the Buddhist tradition, they keep emphasizing that also. It's really precious to be a human being. It's considered very, extremely rare to be born as a human being. It's said that if you're a, if you were a blind turtle swimming out in the Pacific, and somewhere floating in the Pacific was a single log that had a hole up the middle of the log, kind of a hole in it. Like a, the chances are, the chances that that blind turtle would find its way through the Pacific to that one log that's floating there and stick its head up through that hole, that turtle has a better chance of doing that 
than we have being, being born as human beings. It's pretty rare, it said. So I don't know about all that rebirth stuff, but I think it's very precious. And I think that um, life is very short. And I think that uh, it's very fragile, our lives. Um, all kinds of things happen to us. Um, very quickly. All too quickly. Um, I was uh, teaching retreat like this in August, and I was doing an interview, and suddenly my sister appeared at the retreat. That was odd. My family's never visited me during a retreat, so I immediately knew something was wrong. And it turned out that my wife and newborn baby, who was then seven months old, had been in a car accident. Just like that, just from one second to the next. And I had to go to the hospital and see them. And, and uh, they were basically fine, but uh, they both had broken a bone each. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, in some ways, a phenomenal tragedy. Um, they kind of uh, cut through my heart in a way that uh, the very few things I've done in my life, you know, my newborn baby with a broken collarbone. Life is very fragile. We don't know when things will visit us, when suffering will come. And, you know, and life is short, and sooner, sooner or later we age, and, and then sooner or, later we, sooner, sooner or later we die. There is also a tremendous amount of suffering that human beings do to each other. Have you noticed? There's wars. We declare, we declare war on each other, and bang, bang. Uh, and there's wars are between countries, between groups within countries, within members and families, within communities. Tremendous amount of violence and animosity that can happen between people, and it's a kind of suffering. To be willing to sit in the middle of it and not deny it is a, um, a very important capacity. A number of people have uh, told me that when they were first introduced to Buddhism, and they heard these kind of teachings on the Four Noble Truths, it made them really happy because they'd always intuited or sensed that there was all the suffering in the world and the religious tradition they were in touch with or um, uh, their family or whatever was always denying the suffering there. And that there was sometimes something was wrong here. They're always denying it and printing it up. Like I, I did a joint funeral ceremony for a young woman who died some years ago. And I'd never been to a, a Christian funeral before. And so the Christian, I mean, kind of fundamentalist Christian minister went before me. And actually, I'd never done a funeral myself. So I was a little bit nervous about, you know, how to perform a funeral. So I thought, well, the Christian minister will go first, and he'll give me kind of an idea of how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> And he got up and he said, death shouldn't happen. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and I said, well, he probably means, that he's, he's probably talking from his broken heart, you know, like, you know, he really feels the grief of the family and the death of this young woman, who, you know, who died unexpectedly. And, and in that kind of state of the grief and all that, 
He's just expressing his emotion. Oh, it should not happen. Death shouldn't happen. A very human kind of sentiment. Oh, great. He's showing his humanity, his vulnerability. Then he said it, well, well, later he said it again. Death shouldn't happen. Oh. And then he said it again. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, and then I began understanding. What he was saying was, um, oh, then he said, death exists because of Adam and Eve sinned. Death exists because of sin. And I understood that his understanding, I was giving, I was always just expressing kind of very human kind of sentiment. And he was actually expressing a theological point. And I thought, wow. I felt so, I felt, I felt so deeply for the, for the people there who had lost this young, the parents who had lost their young daughter. And blaming the death on sin. I just felt that kind of, I felt odd. So I didn't take his cue about how to, so what I did actually was I got up and actually talked about how he he, he, made, made, he talked about how you, you know you, you, you steal yourself up and put your hand in the hands of the Savior and walk right ahead with a smile. It blew me away that kind of denial of what was happening. You know what was happening was sad. It was painful. There was suffering. There was grief. And at least in my training, the importance was to acknowledge it and to give it space and make room for it and not just make it all better uh, by a few words, but make it better by giving it its due. So I've heard of people, then, a number of people have expressed tremendous happiness to encounter the Buddhist tradition because it seems to be so honest about suffering. And never, they, they had, until then, hadn't encountered anybody who was so honest about suffering. But at looking at suffering, the first of the noble truths, I think it's very important to distinguish two kinds of suffering. One, which very kind of uh, uh, broadly we can call pain, and the other we can call dukkha, which is the Buddhist word usually translated as suffering. But the word dukkha, uh, actually suffering doesn't always work as the best translation. It can mean stress, de-stress, anxiety, uh, unsatisfactoriness. Uh, um, it has a range of meanings. Uh, but there's a kind of pain and there's dukkha. Or another way of saying that this distinction I'm trying to make, there is the inevitable suffering that's part of life. And then there's the optional suffering. And it's very important to understand the difference between the, these two. The inevitable suffering, I, I believe, we're called on just to meet it with dignity, with grace, graciousness, with honesty, um, and uh, try to find our best way to find our equanimity and peace with that. Um, do the best we can. Um, and the inevitable suffering is of all kinds. Um, I, when, when my family was in a car accident, it was painful for me, it kind of cut me to my core in some sense. And I don't know, if maybe that was inevitable for someone to, you know, a father to feel that kind of pain. But um, there was all this optional suffering I added on top of it. I got angry, 
furious at the guy who, who ran into them. And all kinds of angry thoughts came up about what I was going to do to him. And then my shame for how, you know, I'm, a, I'm supposed to be a Buddhist and I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher and, you know, I felt shame and embarrassment for having all these angry feelings. And so first, for, for, first I added the pain of the anger and then I added the pain, the suffering, the optional suffering of feeling shame for my anger. And then, you know, it can go on and on from there, what we add to it. Um, The illness that the Four Noble Truths is aimed to cure is, is the optional suffering. The unavoidable suffering we learn to meet with grace, with graciousness. And I find it somewhat nice to know, maybe some of you will find this nice to know, uh, that the Buddha had a bad back. Isn't that nice to know? <laughs> and there's actually stories of the Buddha um, you know, it was time for him to give the seven o'clock Dharma, Dharma talk. And, uh, and he said, you know, I can't, do, I can't, you know, I can't do it today. I'm going to lay down here on the side and Surya will give the talk tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, you know, so the Buddha had a certain kind of suffering. He had this physical suffering and uh, even a Buddha is not free from that. And he had emotional suffering also. It said that when his homeland was conquered and many people in his homeland were, were killed, uh, that he felt grief, felt kind of pain from that kind of contact. But there's a phenomenal amount of optional suffering in our life, suffering which doesn't need to be there, but suffering that arises out of our relationship to what is happening. And that is really what the first and second noble truths are really pointing at, is that optional suffering. And then the second noble truth is the cause of this optional suffering. And the cause of the optional suffering is, um, the, the Pali word is tanna. And tanna it literally means thirst. Kind of a nice, strong, juicy word, thirst. You thirst for something and really want it. You don't just simply say, you know, I would like something. You say, you know, you know, I'm thirsting for power. Isn't that an expression we have? Thirsting for power. It's, you know, it's one thing to want it, another thing to thirst for it. So thirst has this power, this oomph, this thing. There's other other words, kind of synonyms that I like: uh, compulsion, drivenness. Uh, more traditional ones are grasping, clinging, attachment in the grasping, clinging form of attachment. But I like compulsion and driven, drivenness because then you get a sense, through the words compulsion and drivenness gives you some sense of there's this momentum and this drive that seems to kind of um, um, uh, has kind of a life of its own that kind of causes a kind of, um, it's kind of like addiction, addictedness. It has a kind of a pain in and of itself to be driven. Maybe some of you have experienced when you've really been driven and then to take, an, take a step back for a moment and wow, that was painful to kind of be running around being so driven, so out of control, so uh, uh, um, 
so imbalanced. I was just kind of being led around by my drivenness. I had no choice. So the optional suffering arises from a particular kind of a relationship we have with our experience. And the relationship is that of grasping or clinging in all its forms. When I first um, did my first Vipassana retreat in Thailand, one of the questions in there was, um, I won't won't go into it, Uh, in Thailand was, um, my first retreat was uh, 10 weeks long. I didn't know anything about Vipassana, so I just showed up and stayed there for 10 weeks. And so I had a lot of physical pain at some certain point. And uh, so I went to, I had an interview every day with my teacher, and the interview was conducted through a translator, an American. And um, I started talking about my, my leg pain. I can't stand it, you better give me some good instruction. So he gave me some good instruction, and I went back, dutifully tried it. Pain got worse. I went back and said, you know, what do I do with this pain? It's getting worse. Give me something else to do. So he gave me something else to do. And, uh, you know, all kinds of good things, good advice, you know, like pay attention to it. Don't resist it. See if you can develop some equanimity and acceptance of it. Um, become aware of your relationship to it. You know, all these things that we might say also. And it just got worse and worse. And after about four or five days of this, it was the main subject of our interview. As I was leaving um, the interview site, uh, the translator was leaving with me. And he kind of um, leaned over to me and said, you're really attached to your pain, aren't you? And that blew me away. How could you be attached to pain? I hated it. (laughs) <laughs> and then as so I thought about it for a while and realized that aversion, that kind of compulsion, compulsive aversion, aversion, pushing something away, is a kind of grasping, a kind of uh, attachment also, a kind of drivenness. And as long as we're being driven by something, as long as that compulsion is there, we're not free. And freedom, the freedom that Buddhism is talking about, one way of understanding it, is the freedom from compulsion, free, freedom from all forms of drivenness all forms of compulsion. So, it's interesting then that the Buddha gave uh, a list of four kinds of uh, graspings that uh, produce suffering. And uh, I'll go through the list. But I'm going to reverse the order, because if I told you the first one first, you might get discouraged. But if I tell the last one first, you all say, well, I can do that. That's great. It's good news. So the last one, which is the first one today, is the grasping or attachment um, to ethical and religious practices. Isn't that good news? <laughs> well, I can give up that easily. <laughs> wow, that's no, no sweat. Tell me to get rid of sensual desire. That, you know, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. What's wrong with sensual desire, people will say. But say, you know, you can, you don't, don't grasp religious practices. Oh, whew, no problem. 
<laughs> so, um, but it's not an instruction to uh, give up on your religious practices, spiritual practices. It's rather instruction um, to pay attention to how there's grasping through these things. And there can be a phenomenal amount of grasping, addiction or attachment to spiritual practices or to ethical behavior. Um, there are some people who take on spiritual practices for the sake of their identity. You know, and they go around with the equivalent of a big badge. It says, I'm a big badge. It says, I'm a Buddhist. And it's very important that everybody see, see it, know that they're practicing this wonderful practice. And there's a kind of attachment to, to, the, to, the, um, to the religion or to the practice because it provides an identity. Or perhaps there's a tremendous aversion to life. I can't take my life. I don't like my body. I don't like my life. I don't like my work. I don't like whatever. And so then there's this, based on the, that form of attachment called aversion, there's a grasping on something, maybe as an escape. This will do it. This will get me out of my life as, as an escape. And there can be tremendous grasping. Uh, some people hold on to religious practices for dear life because it offers um, uh, the only idea of escape you can possibly imagine. Um, we get attached to religious practices in very subtle ways here in retreat. Uh, we, we sit, you can feel it sometimes, you, you get very quiet. You can feel in the quality of the effort you bring uh, to paying attention, to being present here. There can be a subtle expectation that something is supposed to happen, something needs to happen. It's a subtle attachment that your practice will offer you some kind of, will offer you something that's in the future, if you just kind of, if, if you just figure out just the right key, do just the right thing. Um, or then there's attachments to certain particular states of uh, experiences that we might have in, in practice. Um, we think that certain state of being is what it means to be a spiritual person. And it's important to be a spiritual person, of course, because then our friends like us better. So, so let's, you know, try to always maintain this particular state. Oh, a spiritual person is a calm person, so let's do the calming practices. Or a spiritual person is a joyful person, so let's be a joyful person. Let's do the joyful practices, the metta practices. Or, you know, we get attached to certain states of mind. And it's really easy to do that. I mean, I, ha- I have been a teacher for a long time now, and I have repeated over and over again the instructions. Mindfulness practice is not about what is happening to you. It's about how you relate to what's happening, how you hold it. There's no particular state of being which is the point of mindfulness practice. You don't, it's, not, it's not a ma- matter of getting calm, it's not a matter of getting concentrated, it's not a matter of getting um, filled with bliss and ecstasy. It's not a matter of seeing great white light or ultimate tranquility. These are all considered, these are all things that are happening to us. These are happenings. What's important is our relationship to it. How do we hold it? Do we hold it without clinging or pushing it away? So I've said that innumerable times. I still do this. I still fall subtly into the idea that, oh yeah, that's, that's you know, oh, this is a good sign, or this is, this, is, this is the point, you know, or 
If I only, you know, a little bit more calm, that would be, then I'd do it right. So, you know, maybe I'm kind of dense, but, uh, but I think since it happens to me still, after all these years of practice in subtle ways, I suspect that it also happens to you. That we confuse the point of the practice to be attaining a certain state. It's not a certain state that we're looking for, but rather it's a new relationship to whatever's happening. The Four Noble Truths are about the relationship we have to what's happening. Not about having some particular kind of happening. So, attachment to uh, ethical practices or religious spiritual practices is uh, a trap that we all fall into and the states that come with it. The other, number, the other is uh, attachment to opinions, to views and opinions. So much suffering in the world happens because of attachment to opinions and views. It creates tremendous separation between people and, uh, at the worst, animosity and violence and war. But to hold on to opinions, to views, is often uh, attachment to control, to security, to being someone who knows, to... Um, there's all kinds of ways in which opinions and views re- uh, are held on to because it reinforces a sense of self, it reinforces a sense of security in, in life. Um, and the Buddha said, this is one of the places we can suffer, attachment to views and opinions. Um, so just sitting here now, do you have views and opinions about my talk? I mean, I'd be surprised if some, you know, if there were no views and opinions at this point so far about this talk. And this guy, you know, he's going on and on and on about this boring subject. You know, or, you know, what's this guy doing? He just talks and talks and talks. Well, some guy up here talking, 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 that's just a happening. But if you're feeling kind of depressed or upset or, you know, impatient or bored or complaining, you know, I, you know, that guy's talking about, we should be talking about something else. We should get the other guy to talk, <laughs> you know. Um, all that, all, it's going to be very subtle, the complaining mind, the, the, um, the various opinions and views we have, our relationship to it, the clinging, the whining, the complaining, the, that's also suffering. Me talking on and on and on, that's just a happening. It might be unpleasant. <laughs> it, might be an unple- it might be an unpleasant happening, or a pleasant one, I don't know how it is. But, but pleasant and unpleasantness is not suffering. Right? Suffer- the suffering that the Four Noble Truths is addressing is how we relate to what's happening. And we can relate causing suffering to either pleasant or unpleasant things. So, I'm not responsible for your suffering around this Dharma talk. <laughs> it's a good thing. And you know, we talk about the continuity of practice 20, you know, the whole day. Some of you actually stop practicing when you listen to the Dharma talk. And then your opinions and your views kick in. And you don't, and you, and you don't even see that you're suffering. And you don't even see how, how you might be suffering, how you're contributing to that. I hope some of you are also having a good time. 
but who knows? We'll see. So attachment to views and opinions can be very subtle, insidious, and cause uh, suffering also. The third is, um, which is kind of somewhat connected to the second, the third is uh, 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 grasping to a sense of self, to self, to views we have about who we are, to ideas of who we, have, who we are, who we need to be. Um, and this is often, this, this is uh, often uh, uh, very, very deeply held. I need to be a certain kind of person, or I need, it's very important that I not be such a kind of person. The idea that I better not be a certain kind of person is often more painful because if then we are that kind of person, then we want to repress it or push it away or deny it or attack it or hate ourselves, hate that part of ourselves. So for example, in my early years of practice, I was a person who, um, I had a tremendous capacity to um, avoid knowing that I was suffering. It was phenomenal, uh, looking back now. And, but one of the ways I didn't know I was suffering was I had a self-image. I had an idea that as who I was, was I was a kind of person, or it was not appropriate to be a kind of person who was angry. So because of that, that, because of that I was unable to see my anger when it was there because it just didn't fit my image. I would just shut off that whole part of who I was. If we have some ideal, some great should about who we need to be, some attachment to who we're supposed to be, then we can shut off a whole part of who we're not. In, in American culture, is, I think for the most part, a culture based on success. Success is a very high value in our culture. When success is what's valued, failure is unacceptable. If failure is unacceptable, then that part of ourselves we end up being at war with, critical about, feeling guilt and shame about. But success and failure is just part of life. It just comes and goes. It's part of, everybody can expect it. The thusness of our life couldn't care one bit if we fail or succeed. The thusness of our life couldn't care one bit if we fail or succeed. The thusness of our life only cares are we being true to ourselves. So attachment to self. It takes many forms, attachment to self. It's interesting that many, a good number of our emotions, emotional responses, arise in dependence on um, um, our attachment to some sense of self. If, for example, I have a sense of who I need to be or who I really am, is I am really a sophisticated kind of guy. So, it's very important that all of you know that I'm sophisticated. And the way I'm going to make sure you know that is by the kind of car I drive. I'm going to get myself a really sophisticated car. I think a really kind of nice, I don't know, what's a sophisticated car? <laughs> James? What? A Jaguar, okay. So like this black, shining, metallic, state-of-the-art, high-technology Jaguar. So one of you is sympathetic for my situation and 
and offers me a Jaguar, as in Donna and the Donna baskets. <laughs> now, if someone gives me a car, I would probably feel somewhat happy. It's kind of a nice event. But because of my need to be sophisticated, I'm elated. Finally, people can see my true nature. I'm sophisticated. The elation and ecstasy that is born from giving me the Jaguar has a lot to do with my self-identity that I'm holding, holding on to. Now, so I get it, I park it out in the parking lot there. One of you who's uh, very mindful somehow managed to back out <laughs> and dense it. And, well, before I see you kind of backing up, and, oh, that person's going to dent my Jaguar. And all this fear gets born, tremendous amount of fear, inordinate amount of fear. It isn't simply fear about, you know, the complications of having to deal with a dent. It's that, oh, my very image of being a sophisticated guy is threatened, because now I'll take it to the shop and they'll give me a beat-up old Volkswagen to take, drive around, and then no one will see, you know, my true nature. And then you do hit me. And then all this anger arises, and the strength of the anger has a lot to do again with this image I have of myself. Are you following me? The attachment we have to a self-image, to self, often is the seed for certain ones of certain kinds of our emotions. We grasp onto a self, and then certain emotions can be born out of that when they threaten it or support it. Someone once said that boredom sometimes is born in people um, who have no sense of their natural sense of just being alive without an identity. Because if people come and praise you, you feel really great, all this energy and aliveness. If someone comes along and criticizes you, you also feel really alive in a different way. But if someone says nothing to you, you know, neither praise nor blame, there's not, no, no, no caffeine of the soul. Nothing happens, and so a person gets bored. And then the fourth attachment is attachment to, uh, this is the unpopular one when you hear this, attachment to, um, to sensual desire, attachment to sensual pleasure. And in some ways, this is actually a very important one for meditators to look at very carefully. Um, it's not a teaching to avoid sensual pleasure in any kind of means. It's fine to have sensual pleasure. It's fine to have it there and just kind of let it register in your being when it's there. It's a teaching not to be grasping for sensual pleasure, not to be attached to it. And we can see out in society these very gross ways in which people do it. Addiction is basically a form of attachment to sensual pleasure. People confuse happiness for pleasure. And that's a tremendous sad thing when we confuse pleasure for happiness. Um, but in mission meditation, you know, how does it, what are the more subtle forms it takes? We sit here and um, our butt hurts in the zafu. And so this subtle desire for more pleasant experience arises, for comfort. And so you start fantasizing. Out of that desire for comfort, you start fantasizing about designing the most perfect zafu, 
water filled with a thermometer, with, with a, water filled with a little heater inside. <laughs> It'd be great, wouldn't it? Uh, or, or you know, you're sitting here and you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and so there's a subtle, you know, not just simply going off into fantasy, but a constant kind of shifting and adjusting our posture, always looking for the right and comfortable posture, rather than simply staying present for what is true and what's happening, and and clarifying our relationship to what's happening, rather than always going towards what's pleasure, the pleasant, the pleasant thing. It happens, I think, very subtly with the ways in which, um, um, even more subtly, in the effort in which we make practice, we engage in our practice. I discovered this for myself in the ways in which I was present for my breathing. I noticed at some point that I was attached to comfort in the way I was present for my breathing, and it actually kind of hang on to my in-breath and out-breath to comfort me to soothe me, to kind of see if it would calm me. Because I was kind of attached very subtly to being calm, these soothed, pleasant feelings just that might be there. And when I saw that, I saw there was a huge difference between resting in, you know, being soothed by an experience like the breath versus the clarity of just simply, simply knowing it for what it is. And so, actually, when I kind of stopped leaning into the breath as a way of kind of soothing myself through the breath, but kind of just opened up more fully and just kind of allowed it to be there and just kind of felt it as it was, recognized, registered how it actually was, um, my mind, my awareness brightened dramatically. And uh, it was really, really helpful for my practice. But you watch how, how in the very effort we make, to practice, there can be grasping and attachment, an expectation. There can be suffering in the effort we make to practice. And one of the beauties about the instructions to pay attention to Four Noble Truths, to pay attention to suffering and grasping, is it makes the practice self-correcting. Because it, you actually you also need to turn the mirror of awareness back sometimes to notice the quality of the way in which you practice. How do you relate to your practice? How are you doing? Are you pushing? You're pushing to get something. Or are you kind of hesitant, pulling back, which is a kind of a grasping also, in the way, kind of reluctant to be present? You can pay attention to the first and second noble truths right there in the effort and way you practice. And it's very helpful to do that because it's a lot easier to find a balance of how to, get, how to be fully engaged in practice, but to do it in a balanced way so there's not any suffering in the way that we practice. Then the fourth noble truth, the third noble truth, which is the truth of the cessation, the end of suffering, the end of grasping, of compulsion. One of the important aspects of mindfulness practice is that as we get simpler and as we get clearer and see more clearly, we increase the amount of choice we have in our life. The example I gave yesterday of, you know, if you're not paying attention to your life at all, and suddenly you're kind of walking down the street carrying the ice cream cone, you had no choice about whether you're going to buy, buy that ice cream cone or not, because you weren't even present enough. If you're, 
you know, if uh, many of us have found ourselves doing things compulsively and only been aware that we did it after the fact, said something out of impulse and after the fact realized we did it. And there's no choice if it's done impulsively. You don't see that you're even doing it. But as the mindfulness becomes stronger, we start recognizing what's happening in the present moment more. One of the beautiful things that happens is we have more choice. And the, the simpler and more mindful we get, the more choice that we have. And one of the choices we have, at some point, is to relate to our experience in a new way, to relate to our grasping, our, our compulsion in a new way. When compulsion arises, to see it clearly, and not to get on that train and get swept away in it, perhaps. Or if we do get swept away in it, Maybe the choice we have is how to relate to that compulsion in a friendly way, as opposed to relate it to with criticism or anger or disappointment, not one more time. But we start seeing that we have choice. And the, the, the more penetrating and more profound and more still and quieter the awareness becomes, the more we see, the more the subtlety of choice that we have. And we can actually choose freedom over compulsion in small ways. We can choose to have a new relationship to what's happening. And one of the ways to relate to what's happening is a little bit hard to say, and probably saying it wrong, but we can choose not to have a relationship to it at all. We can choose not to either push it away or hold on to it but rather choose to allow it to be in awareness without there being any uh, involvement with what's happening. Grasping is kind of like the Velcro of the mind. And when we see our choices, when we see mindfully clearly enough, with enough clarity, the mind becomes more like Teflon. And we, and, and, We don't relate to the happenings of the world, happenings within us, with the grasping, with the holding. And we allow the experience to be as it is. When awareness doesn't relate to objects as objects, doesn't relate to objects as something to do something with, then awareness begins, begins to become free. It's no longer stuck intimately onto objects. Most of us, most of our lives, um, are so consumed with objects of minds, so consumed with, with the happenings or want, the, the happenings we want to happen. It's called the monkey mind, kind of spinning around from one object to another, blaming objects, blaming the world, wanting objects, wanting things to be different, looking at things objectively. When we stop kind of looking at the world object, as, uh, in, a, in an objective way as objects, ourselves as an object, and we see ourselves as a self, as an identity. I'm a sophisticated kind of guy. I'm objectifying myself, and I'm relating to myself as an object. But you don't have to relate to anything as an object. The awareness can just be open, and things can just arise in awareness and pass without our having any kind of relationship of grasping to it at all. And this is called, this is partly what this freedom that we talk about in Buddhism, the, the cessation of grasping, um, 
is choosing not to grasp, not to hold on. To realize, to see very deeply that it's not, not necessary to grasp anything. And then slowly to find the trust in ourselves that it's okay to be alive, it's okay to function in the world without needing to grasp onto anything, not needing to resist anything, hold on to anything. We don't have to worry about things. We don't have to be critical of, uh, uh, aversive to things. The cessation of suffering is really the good news. And it's a very funny, um, it's 8.03. Uh, remember what I said about your suffering, right? Around the Dharma talk. <laughs> and you'll, you'll forgive me maybe for going on. I meant to, it's an occupational hazard. Talk on and on. Um, The mind that grasps in all its various forms, permutations, is called in Buddhism, many of you know, the monkey mind. And it's constantly kind of in motion, kind of grabbing this, grabbing this, pushing that away, wanting this to be different, wanting something to be the same, wanting, holding on, whatever. Always in motion. The mind that doesn't relate to anything has no motion in it. It's almost as if the mind that doesn't relate to anything uh, holds everything within it. And everything within it does what it does. But the mind that holds it all doesn't move, is still. There's no motion. Perhaps a, uh, the closest kind of dramatic sense you probably many of you have had of this is if you've been maybe driving in a car and been in a, in a very close accident, or maybe you were in an accident but you end up being just fine, but it was, for a moment there you thought this was the end. And for a while, maybe well, still the adrenaline is running or something, for a while afterwards, there's this tremendous stillness. This tremendous, uh, the, the, everything is completely still. Nothing's moving. Tremendous stillness everywhere. Of course things are moving. People, you look at people and they're kind of doing, talking and running around and asking if you're okay. But there's a sense, even though all these things are happening, there's tremendous, nothing's happening. There's tremendous stillness is like this aware, still, still, Awareness which holds it all. So the Buddha said, for one who clings, motion exists. But for for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no arising or passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This verily, this truly is the end of suffering. For one who clings, motion exists, but for one who clings not, there is no motion.
freedom from suffering, to have a mind, to have a presence. It's said sometimes that when the, um, our identity, our holding on to identity, vanishes, drops down to zero, that awareness goes out to infinity, becomes so large, phenomenally still. I hope some of you appreciate the stillness of this room. I think this great open space of this room is kind of like the way that our, our mind and awareness can be. It can actually be quite open and spacious and holds everything within it. Quite different from the normal experience, where we're kind of riding shotgun on top of every possible concern and preoccupation, and there's very little room. So then the fourth noble truth is very helpful because it's possible to look at the first three noble truths and get idealistic. It's possible to look at the first no, three, 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 three noble truths and, um, and think, well, I can never live up to that. It seems too great of an ideal. The freedom of all the suffering, the stillness of mind that doesn't make any sense that Gil's talking about. Where mindfulness always begins is where we are with the actual. If there's a conflict, if there's a conflict between your ideal and what's actually happening, sacrifice the ideal for the actual. Be with that what's actually happening and be really truthful for what's actually happening. And because of who actually we actually are, it's, it's very difficult to be a human being. It's very difficult to cope with our suffering and our attachments. There's the prescription the path that helps us, that supports us in moving in the direction of becoming free. And that is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is, um, part of it has to do with understanding, understanding how the Four Noble Truths work in our life. And part of it is living a life, speaking in ways, making a living in ways that are supportive, that helps us become more sensitive helps us become more at ease with ourselves, so we're not in conflict with ourselves. So because if we're not in conflict, if we're not in conflict with ourselves, it's a lot easier to um, wake up. The lawyer who came to retreat and said, in my particular firm, in my particular line of work, I'm expected to lie. Please tell me how I can uh, continue lying and be a good Buddhist. You can't. You can't develop a sensitivity of the practice if your behavior isn't taken care of. So, to look at our behavior. So the, four, the eighth, Eightfold Path is something which all of you can study in your own time, since we've run out of time now. But uh, it's also important to look at ways in which we can also adjust our behavior, adjust our lives, to make it more supportive for our deep intention for becoming free. When I, in my early years of practice, I thought that um, I didn't have to change at all. I was very aversive to the idea that I had to do any kind of behavioral change in my life. I thought it was just a matter of sitting quietly and getting enlightened, and that was it. But I think that's actually uh, not only unrealistic, I think it's irresponsible. And I think that if we're really responsible, it's actually quite healthy and quite normal to look in, at our lives, reflect deeply about our lives, and see, are there ways in which I can live more honestly, more, more 
ways in which it caused less harm, less disruption, ways in which I'm not in conflict with my true self. And all that supports the possibility of then looking more deeply. And looking more deeply shows us the possibility of becoming free of that grasping and that clinging, which is optional. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Thank you all for listening patiently. I'm sorry I talked for so long.